morning. I made it. Um, as Kathy said earlier, I'm Ames Carpenter. I use they, them pronouns. I'm a community worker, organizer, activist, and coach. Um, and yes, many worlds fit here. I also seem to contain multitudes along with Walt Whitman. Um, and as we talk today about where many worlds fit, um, one of the things is you heard me say, I use they, them pronouns. And when I talked to the Sunday gathering team, they weren't sure if you'd all had had someone speak here before who uses they, them pronouns or non-binary pronouns. And so they gave me permission to spend just a little time talking about it and how as a community, because I know C3 really prides itself on being inclusive, how as a community um, that might work. So. I know that we have questions at C3, so I'm gonna start with a question. How and when did you know that you are the gender that you were assigned at birth? How and when did you know that you are the gender you were assigned at birth? You can reflect on that. I ask you that question because in 2016, I was asked that question and the answer started to surprise me. I was 50 years old. I had thought of myself as a cisgender woman my entire life, but the moment I heard the word, the term trans non-binary, I went, oh, oh, that's, that's what it is. That's what I am. Um, if you've not heard the term before, trans non-binary, I brought a little visual aid. There is a flag because my people love flags. Um, and this is the non-binary flag. Now there's also a gender queer flag and they them, uh, they them, their pronouns can be used for a variety of genders. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about this non-binary flag. Let me hold it up so people can see. Um, so this was designed by Kai Rowan at 17 years old in the year 2014. And this flag has four colored stripes on it to represent some different ways, I wouldn't say all the different ways, but some different ways of being non-binary. Now at the top is a yellow stripe. This is a person who, who identifies as being off the binary completely. Not male, not female, not somewhere in between somewhere off that line completely. This is the closest to what I would say I identify as. The white stripe is for um, all people who are multiple genders, male, female, and maybe something else, just as colors of light blend to make white, different genders blend to make this non-binary identity. The purple is for people who feel they're somewhere on the spectrum between male and female. And the black at the bottom is for folks who feel that they are agender, without a gender. Gender is simply not an identifier that works for them at all. Um, the black line, sorry all, the microphone was offended. 
black line opens up, in fact, the whole flag and the whole non-binary existence opens up, but the black line in particular harks back or resonates with something that was true and that really aligns with our theme of where many worlds fit. In pre-colonial West Africa, the Yoruba people, actually today, they still speak with a genderless language. Their language has no gender. And in pre-colonial days, there was no gender in the society. Um, mostly where Yoruba, uh, people spoke the language of Yoruba. Um, in her book, The Invention of Women, Oyeronke Oyewumi, who is a Yoruba speaker, talks about the way the society was structured. Now, it's not that they didn't have people who gave birth and nursed babies, and they didn't have people who pee standing up, right? But it's not, it was not an organizing principle of their society. Seniority, who was an elder. Those were the people who took certain roles, and people who didn't have as much seniority took other roles. So gender is a social construct that organizes our society. It divides in a particular way. Um, and so that's one place where we can start to open up new worlds. So Beth earlier mentioned Next Benedict. Um, and in that spirit of creating pockets where new worlds can emerge and non-binary people can exist, um, I'm wondering if you all, as you're learning about pronouns, um, would enter some community agreements with me. And you can, I'll say them and you can see what you think. Um, the first is we'll always try to use the correct pronouns for someone. The second is if we don't know their pronouns, we'll ask. And I have done it in mid-introduction, like start to say a pronoun and go, you know what, I'm not sure if that's the right one. What are your pronouns? So it's okay to interrupt ourselves while we're learning. The third is mistakes. I think it's what everyone's the most afraid of, right? I'm going to make a mistake. I'm going to misgender this person. We all make mistakes. I misgender myself sometimes. It's not fun. Um, so we accept that. We accept correction or we correct ourselves and we move on. You don't have to belabor the point. We know we're all learning. And it doesn't necessarily help what the medical industry calls gender dysphoria for trans folks if you talk about why you made the mistake. Okay? Trans folks are pretty well aware of how they might present and kind of their own journey with their gender. And then fourth, and this can be a little against the usual social fabric, if you hear someone make a mistake, as soon as you can, interrupt and just say this person uses and insert their correct pronouns. Okay, because if you let the person keep talking, their brain keeps remembering the wrong pronouns, and it sets the culture for the conversation. So uh, in organizer culture, when we agree with something, we do snaps. So if people feel like they like those community agreements, use the right pronouns, ask if we don't know, if you make a mistake, correct and move on, and correct others, you can give me some snaps. I hear some snaps, I hear some, and if some of you are just thinking about it, that's okay too. Um, so let's kind of move into 
When I think about how we create things as humans, I think about tools, right? What are the tools that we use? If we're thinking about where many worlds fit, what are the tools that we use to create a world where many worlds fit? Um, there are definitely some cultural stories out there about what our first tools were as early humans and as early hominids. Um, one of the best, best known uh, representations of early tools is the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick, right? The opening scene um, after the monolith appears, a early hominid picks up a bone and starts experimenting with hitting with it, using it as a weapon, right? Smashing skulls, fighting off people who are trying to take over their water hole. Um, this, is, this is a story that sets up humanity in a certain way. It's a weapon, it's a straight line progress because in the movie the bone is thrown into the air and it shifts into an image of a spaceship. Okay, um, It's kind of a straight line domination, violence story about humanity. And in her 1988 essay, Ursula Le Guin, the science fiction writer, and I see nods, but I'm thinking, people have read this, and it's been around a while. Um, if you haven't read it, you have a wonderful present in store for you. Um, she says that there are anthropologists, such as Elizabeth Fisher, who feel that actually the evidence points to not a weapon or um, something that cuts or bludgeons or stabs being the first tool that humans use. She says, we were gatherers before we were hunters for like 15,000 years. And so when you gather things, what do you need? You need a bag. You need a carrier bag. Here's how Le Guin writes it. It is a human thing to do to put something you want because it's useful, edible, or beautiful into a bag or basket, a bit of rolled bark or leaf, or a net woven of your own hair, and then take it home with you, home being another larger kind of pouch or bag, a container for people. This, of course, opens up the carrier bag as a metaphor for many things, for culture, for humans, the things that we hold, the things we contain. And so I'd like to play with this idea of the carrier bag for a while and how can it maybe decolonize our thinking? Can it lead us back to relationship with land? Because gatherers are very definitely in relationship with land. It's a well-known rule among foragers that you never take more than 10% of a crop because you very much want that crop to continue to propagate itself in the ecosystem. Um, there's a lot of respect for land. And it also allows us to radically reimagine maybe our place in the world, the idea of the carrier bag. So one of the things is carrier bag is community, right? We are bringing things back to our community so that everyone can eat. It also supposes that when we are gathering, we are with community because I am sure one of the earliest uses 
for a carrier bag would be a child like we have in the back, right? When you need your hands to gather mushrooms or shoots or seeds or nuts, you need your child to be close but not in your hands at that moment. So carrier bag is incredibly useful for that. Carrier bag allows us to tell non-linear, non-heroic stories. It's not just about a narrative that goes forward. In fact, Le Guin writes, the hero does not look well in this bag, this carrier bag. He needs a stage or pedestal or pinnacle or microphone. You put him in a bag and he looks like a rabbit, a potato. Not very noble and heroic. The carrier bag gives us a place to put our inner worlds. We as humans are not just moving forward in this driving force of domination. We as humans contain multitudes, we contain complexities. And then it allows our inner world to meet difference within our community or outside of our community. Audre Lorde writes, difference must not be merely tolerated but seen as a fund of necessary polarities between which our creativity can spark like a dialectic. That's a complex quote. I'll read it again, and we'll break it down a bit. Difference must not be merely tolerated, but seen as a fund. Difference is a wealth of necessary polarities, right? The negative, the positive, between which our creativity can spark like a generator when the magnets move, like a dialectic, a conversation. Now we have room not just for one line going through, but for radiant possibilities. We have rooms for multiple worlds now. I think about in our day-to-day -day life, how often we still use carrier bags. I have two by my seat, one by, for my notes, and one is my daily bag, right? And in fact, people are known for carrying their daily bags and the way that they build community. Um, I was a parent of young children for a very long time. We never went anywhere without the diaper bag. People know you, you do not miss taking the diaper bag. I see nods. Yes, exactly. The diaper bag has not just diapers, but wipes, which you use for everything. It has bottles or drinks. It has snacks. It has tissues, it maybe has hand sanitizer, it has lotion. Everything you need is in that bag, and you share it. When you are at a park date, and you see a mother struggling with um, her child's runny nose, you've got the tissues, it's okay, you know, you've got them, right? We've got each other. We carry the things we need in our bag. One of the things I like are kind of daily meditations on everyday things. And so I love to think of our carrier bags bringing us back right, to our roots as humans, to our cleverness as humans, to make something that we can carry and share out of. Um, grocery bags, we bring food home to our loved ones, our family, our friends. Toolkits, we're talking about tools. Well. Toolkits carry our tools by which we fix our homes and our cars. And a lot of people will say that cars are more a directed energy because of the engine that carry us forward. 
but I have always thought of cars as a safe space that encapsulate us as we move through our adventures and through our worlds. Or in public transportation, subway cars, train cars, right? The place is created for us to be safe, to bring our loved ones with us. And now they even have cup holders. I mean, what more do you want? So another thing that carrier bag allows, and I have learned this in my experience as an organizer and an activist, is change. This excites me. Now, I have a story to tell, and I hesitate to tell it because it sounds like a heroic story, and it's not. It's a story about me being kind of a wimp, not a hero. Uh, so keep in mind, as I tell this story, that there is a carrier bag that I'm going to get to at the end of it. In 2017, Trump had just taken office, and I live in Grand Rapids, and we have a lot of immigrant neighborhoods and a lot of immigrant neighbors. And people were incredibly activated. ICE, which is uh, Immigration Customs Enforcement, was very active in our communities, and they were daily making raids and taking our neighbors away. And they would often target the breadwinner of a family so that the children and spouse who was left not only had lost someone they care very much about, but they had um, lost their way of making a living. So um, I was working with immigrant justice groups. I worked with Rapid Response to ICE, where we tried to interrupt rates. And I, uh, we also provided mutual aid to families who had been um, left without an income. And I worked with Movimiento Cosecha, Grand Rapids. Movimiento Cosecha is Spanish for the harvest movement. And they were pointing the direction to the fact that so much of our food supply depends on immigrant labor, um, that they are the harvesters. And so Movimiento Cosecha was fighting ICE. We fought a contract that our local jail, Kent County Jail, had with ICE, where ICE would pay them for beds to detain immigrants. We wanted Kent County to end that contract. And so what we did was we staged a protest, and it was a civil disobedience protest in front of the ICE office, which in Grand Rapids is just two blocks north of City Hall, and I feel like that says a lot. Um, in this case, if we're talking about tools, I think the tool that I was evolving to be was a wrench in the gears, right? There can be no business as usual as our neighbors are being separated from their families. So the action took place, and I stood in the middle of the street between other fellow activists, and we blocked traffic. Blocking traffic on a side road is not a big deal, but this side road is the exit to a major highway downtown. So we were blocking the exit to 196. Traffic backed up real quick. The police chief was there in five minutes. It's kind of a record for GRPD, <laughs> not to mention the chief. <laughs> so I was standing in the middle. I had people on other sides. We were holding the banners. And we were given our ultimatums, right? Either move from this road or you'll get arrested. And the cops started moving in side to side, and they gave everyone that ultimatum. 
move from this road or you'll be arrested. And the guy to my right, kind of a firebrand, yells, absolutely not, ice out of Kent County. And the guy to my left is also standing very strong, and he, you know, move or you'll be arrested. I will not, I stand with immigrants. And then they come to me. I have to face the fact that I am a 50-year-old femme-presenting woman, disabled, who has never said no to a cop in my life, right? I have been socialized very heavily to go along, to obey, and I have to really face that in that moment. Mentally, I felt like I was prepared. My body had other opinions. I couldn't speak. I could not utter a thing. I wanted to say the absolutely not, the I stand with my immigrant neighbors. Nope, nothing was coming out. I shut my mouth and I just shook my head. No, I will not move. And it was enough. I got arrested. <laughs> Yay, snaps. <laughs> I did what I set out to do. Why could I face my own history of complicity and obedience with a system that deports our neighbors? This is where we get to the carrier bag because I had a community. While I stood there unable to utter what I needed to utter, I heard them around me. They were all safely on the sidewalk so they wouldn't get arrested because many of them would face deportation if they got arrested. And they shouted, we've got you, Ames. We see you, Ames. Thank you, Ames. In fact, that entire day, from the moment I left the door, I was taken by my support person to the place of the direct action. She fed me breakfast. She made sure she had my valuables for the arrest. When um, I was in the holding cell, I knew that she had my bail, and she was already making my bail arrangements. And I knew that when I got out, I was a big Diet Coke drinker at the time, that I would have a Diet Coke waiting for me. <laughs> and that felt important. Um, and so it was the carrier bag that allowed me to find what I needed within myself to make a change, to make a stand. We did end up getting ICE out of Kent County. We did end that contract through our continued efforts. Yeah, we can snap for that. <laughs> it was a big win for our movement. The other thing that happened in jail is because I was so well supported, it's not like I could bring a carrier bag into Kent County with me but into Kent County Jail with me. But what I could bring was my capacity to hold space for other people. Now, when you're in jail, they separate you by how they perceive your gender. And so I was separated with the woman in the holding cell. And I met women who were all having the worst day of their life. I met a woman who was on her way to her first day of her second job. This was going to allow her to catch up on bills. Well, she got stopped for a traffic violation. She did not realize she had enough unpaid traffic tickets because note the fact about catching up on bills that there was a warrant out for her. So she was pulled into the jail. What's more, she had a child at school who was expecting a pickup. And the phones in jail don't always work like you think they're going to. It's not like they take you into a place and give you a phone they're often collect calls. So she could not reach anyone to pick up her child from school that day. That's that violent interruption of life. 
There was another woman there who had been transferred from another facility because she had not paid her child support. She was to serve two weeks in Kent County Jail. That two weeks would interfere with her ability to have the back surgery so she could start work again, so she could pay her child support, right? People are punished for being poor. What I was able to do was bring some community inside the jail. I could listen to them. Every woman in that holding cell cried at one time or another. And you go in to jail and you have to be tough. You have to be tough to survive. But with me, for a moment, they could be soft and they could get support. The other thing is my jail support team was out in the lobby of the, um, the release kind of lobby and they had, for everyone, not just us, they had Advil, they had pizza, they had drinks, they had charged cell phones so people could call for a ride. So that entire day, because it took about seven hours for us to be bailed out, um, they just served people coming through, helped them get rides, helped them make calls, helped them eat, helped them take care of their headache that they probably had for who knows how many days. That is all carrier bag at work. That's all honoring this story of who we are as humans. Now my quote today, the world we want is one where many worlds fit, comes from the Zapatistas. And I found out in our pre-talk that many of you know who the Zapatistas are. Um, we are just in this talk creating space for different worlds, from Yoruba to Cosecha to the Zapatistas. So I'll talk briefly before I close. The Zapatistas started organizing in 1983 in Chiapas, Mexico, which is the southernmost state of Mexico. It is rich in resources, but it is a poverty-stricken state. The Zapatistas are mostly indigenous Mayan. They speak several languages. Um, they have all learned Spanish. If they're dealing with the press, they learn Spanish as a second language. But they speak indigenous languages. In 1983, they started traveling in small groups to various villages in the rainforest and the mountains to start building people power. In 1994, 11 years later, and 30 years ago, right, on January 1st, they started an uprising. They took territory in seven different towns within their, their region. January 1st, 1994 was also the day that NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, was in effect, went into effect. And so they picked that day as a symbolic strike back against neoliberal colonialism that was ruining their lives. And their decision to do, and it was an armed uprising, was this. They said they would rather die by a bullet than watch their children die of another preventable disease. So their uprising, their armed uprising, only lasted about two weeks. Often when they heard the Mexican army was coming, they would flee to the hills. But the people of Mexico took to the streets in support of the Zapatistas. The Zapatistas showed them this is possible. We can protest and resist the governments that are taking over. The Mexican government continues to come after the Zapatistas, and they've installed an army base near their land. But the Zapatistas have maintained control of much of their land. 
They've developed economic cooperatives where people who work the land decide what happens with the harvest. They have also really um, evolved when it comes to fighting patriarchy and with a gender analysis. Life for women before the Zapatista uprising was that they didn't choose who they married, they didn't choose how many children they had, they didn't choose anything about their lives, and they didn't have any education or any access to health care, either for them or for their children. But a third of the Zapatista, Zapatista revolutionaries were women. And though they were initially recruited to fight, well, now they were in the conversation. And they kept pushing that they needed rights, that they needed education, that they needed to choose who they wanted to marry, they, they needed to choose how many children they were going to have. And that is something that the Zapatistas have really done. It's been 30 years, but the Zapatistas still influence a lot of the work that I do in organizing and activism. The way that they've come and the way that they cooperatively work together, their relationship to land, their indigenous principles of the way, they, way that they live together, all of that has influenced a lot of what they do. And they have created a small area where their world exists too, alongside the other worlds that we know. So I have questions for us, uh, and then I'll close with a poem. My questions are, how this week will we bring the carrier bag into our lives? How might we remember, right, our early human ancestors? How will we create space for a world where many worlds fit? How might we use radical imagination this week? I wrote this poem in 2017. It was published in the 3288 Review. Um, and it is about me radically imagining how our inner worlds and our unconscious, the things we don't think about, mix with the organizing work that I'm doing. The poem is called Constellations, and it starts with a quote by Helen Luke, who is a Jungian analyst in the tradition of Carl Jung. She writes, whatever we de deny or ignore constellates in the unconscious. We are everything you never thought about, growing in the shadows, reaching out a hand. We brought each other meals of the fear you never spoke. A sprinkle of our salt made it meat and fire we could eat. Your eyes burned in the sun that glints steel skyscrapers while we have patterned the night. We are there now, whistling. Thank you. <laughs>